Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another Mailbag, where I answer your questions, your takes, your comments, or wherever it may be, about whatever it may be. Always a lot of fun. Uh, remember, if you're watching on YouTube, please subscribe, like this video, and you can hit the bell button next to the subscription button to be notified whenever I drop a video. If you're listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, wherever you may get your podcast, please leave a rating and a review. Link to the podcast is in the description. Hope everyone is doing well. I'm battling a, a little headache tonight, but we're going to fight like Ferrer. We're going to get through this one. New microphone. It's actually an old microphone. I was going back and watching old videos, and I forgot how much better this one sounds. Um, it's a little bit less mobile. So when I'm moving around, I, I like the other one. All right. First comment comes from Ali. Oh, you know what? Never mind. We're not going to start with that. We're going to go to Twitter for our first comment. Follow me on Twitter at Gil Gross. First one comes from Kevin Sokolow. Zverev, is he ever going to win a Grand Slam? I thought he's been due for one since making the top five in 2018. He's shown he's capable, three times master champion, but he hasn't made the final push in Grand Slams, only one semifinal appearance, perhaps once the big three disappear. I think when it comes to this entire hiatus, the, the Zverev storyline is a bit lost. A lot of people were spinning it as a positive for Federer, who was uh, having knee surgery and was going to miss a lot of this time anyway. A lot of people painted it as a negative for Djokovic, who hadn't lost a match in the year 2020. But what about Zverev? Finally making his breakthrough at the Australian Open, uh, the quarterfinal was such a barrier for him at Grand Slams for such a long time, and uh, he finally made a major semifinal. So Zverev was probably as hurt as, as anyone by this pause in the action. In terms of if he's going to win a Grand Slam, yeah, to me, he's in he's in that group where I'm pretty confident that he's going to win a slam. Uh, the trouble for me, and I don't know how universal this opinion really is, but I, I like Zverev best on slow courts. I think he's got a big serve, which is it's great on a fast court, but other than that, absolutely no other part of his game, to me, is suitable for um, for faster courts. And in terms of the Grand Slams that I see as wide open for people outside of the big three to win it right now, I'm looking at the U.S. Open, number one, and then the Aussie for, to a lesser extent. You know, the French has been monopolized by Rafa, and if it's not going to be Rafa or, or Novak, well, it's almost definitely going to be Dominic Team. Wimbledon, I, I just haven't seen good grass results from the young players, and I do think it takes a little bit of time to get used to playing on grass. You don't get a lot of practice, and I, I wouldn't call anyone a, a natural at it. Even even so, I think Medvedev and, and Tsitsipas I'd put above um, Zverev in terms of my chances at Wimbledon. Um, so I kind of think that Zverev's best chance would be the French, but there's that's that's the one that I don't see anyone else winning. Um you know, perhaps the U.S. Open for Zverev, but again, I, I would put I would put three players above him. I would put Team, I would put Tsitsipas, and I'd put Medvedev above Zverev. But it is coming. If if you hang around long enough, and Zverev's at an age where he's got plenty of years ahead of him, um, I'm I'm pretty confident he'll win one. 
Uh, next one from Oliver Whalen. Hey, Gil, do you think this extended break um, could help Federer like it did in 2016? I think I think he means 2017. Or do you think he will lose too much match toughness and rhythm? Thanks. Um, okay, here's the thing. Uh, yeah, at the end of the day, I think it'll help because I don't think it would have been ideal for him to lose the rankings points that he stood to lose. Um, you know, so, so he'll come back with, with the rankings freeze and, and basically he'll hit the ground running and he won't have to deal with some unlucky draws. And that's part of the challenge of, of working your way back up from injury is you're going to get some really cruddy draws uh, along the way. You know, your Federer, had he missed all that time would have been in a situation where, you know, he was going to possibly draw some of the top ranked players in the third and fourth round. So you know, at, at the end of the day, I think the extended break was coincidentally a good thing for Federer. But in terms of match toughness, that's hard to say because I'm pretty adamant that the fact that he played um, the clay courts last season helped him when he moved it over to the grass courts and played great tennis at Wimbledon. I think the match toughness is a big factor for Federer. I, I like it when he plays more matches as long as he stays healthy. Uh, because I just I find that he performs better under pressure when he is more used to playing matches. And that's just kind of my observation. I can't empirically back that up. I also think that it's it's true for most players. The more you play, the the more calm you can be when um, when you're in pressure situations. It's really hard for me to say. I know I'm gonna get a lot of questions about, Who's going to benefit from from not hitting a tennis ball for four months? This is an unprecedented situation. And, and I know that's kind of a buzzword with this whole virus thing, unprecedented. It's like how you start every email. Hey, hope you're well during these unprecedented times, either that or difficult or challenging. But, but truly, I mean, who knows how this is going to play out? I can guess. I can guess. I can say that. You know, like like my guess is that it's not going to hit the older players as hard as people think. Um, but it's just a guess. Now we move to YouTube. Ali, Gil, just wanted to start by saying love your work. I have two questions for you. Thank you for that. Uh, first question. Uh, I know that tennis has its own set of financial dynamics and logistical challenges, such as international travel, but based on the progress of other sports returning to action, what's your best guess on when we'll see the ATP's return and why? My best guess is the U.S. Open, late August. Um, the Okay, so, so the first factor is that the U.S. Open is a, is in a position where they're getting $80 million from ESPN. Uh, that's just their American television deal, right? You can add on to that uh, whoever carries the, the U.S. Open internationally. But I know from ESPN they're going to get $80 million. And that's just not even close to the number for, for these other events um, in terms of what they're receiving from TV revenue. If you look at most of what the tournament directors are saying— on a lower level, they're saying, look, we cannot be profitable if we don't have fans. And that is because, one, you don't get ticket revenue, but also the sponsors around the ground, the vendors, the whole um, economy of a tennis tournament 
A lot of it is obviously based on attendance. But for the U.S. Open, there's so much cash coming in from TV that I do think, no matter what, it will be beneficial if they figure it out. The second thing is, okay, is this possible? Can you figure it out? And one of the main hurdles for that is is the government. But um, I'm starting to become pretty confident that that the New York government, the governor, Andrew Cuomo, is going to be on board and supportive of, of having a U.S. Open. And this is something he tweeted earlier. Um, of course, we have some opinions in the replies here. Uh, but Cuomo says, New York State is ready and willing to partner with major sports teams that are interested in playing games safely without fans. If our professional sports teams can make it work and be safe on their end, we are supportive. So the fact that the governor is showing support for, for sports to even happen, that, that's big for the U.S. Open because ultimately it was going to be up to the government to, to give that okay. If, if Governor Cuomo wasn't on board, the U.S. Open wasn't going to happen. Um, so it looks like the government is a checkmark. The economics, I think, is a checkmark. You know, now you um, you have the players, but I don't think that I don't think that it's so challenging in tennis. If if some players don't want to come, I still think they can stage the tournament. So I see the U.S. Open happening. I see that being the first tournament back. Don't get mad at me if it doesn't happen. All right, I'm not I'm not a psychic here. A lot of things can happen. Who knows? Uh, the second question is, how do you think Djokovic's and Nadal's games will evolve into their late 30s? I personally feel that unlike FedFan, neither of these two have the serve or first strike style to continue dominating the majors at the tail end of their careers. However, they're both so mentally tough and very capable of continuing to adjust their games. For me, Nadal's big weapons, uh, example, the fear hand and the effectiveness slash desire to come to net lend themselves to more prolonged success, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Someone's a Brad Gilbert fan. We have two Gilbertisms in here. We have Fed Fan, which is BG's nickname for Fetter, and we have Fear Hand, which is also a trademarked Brad Gilbertism. Um, yeah, so this is a really good question. It's something that I've, I have thought about. For Nadal, I think we've we've really already seen the answer to this question. Uh, you're right, Nadal is has become more willing to come to net. It's kind of an evolution a while ago. I don't think that's anything new. I think I think we started seeing that as as early as 2017, honestly. Um, and throughout his whole career, he's been a good volleyer, but it's all about volume. How often he's coming to net, we are seeing him tactically. Uh, much more willing to go after the first forehand, which just probably wasn't on, probably philosophically wasn't something that he was really aligned with early in his career to just take a big risk on risk on the first ball. That that really just wasn't his way. He he didn't want to because he didn't want to miss the first ball. Right. That that that's not that was not something that you were gonna see very often from a young Nadal. But now you, you got to be willing to miss the first ball sometimes. And I think Nadal has, has taken steps towards that direction. And I think more recently in the last two seasons, he has beefed up the serve. Again, that, that's more recent. I think that's that's 2019, that's 2020, um, where, where he's starting to serve bigger. 
for Djokovic, you're right. It's been less obvious because we haven't seen the, the same kind of physical decline. I think we've seen more physical decline in Nadal than we have in Djokovic. It's, it's amazing. You know, Novak still seems to have, for the most part, his speed, his hip mobility, his flexibility, um, and all of that. Um, and yeah, I, I don't see, I, I think your comment is astute. I don't see Djokovic doing the same thing with his forehand, um, which I don't know how much more aggressive he can really get with that shot without really changing the way, you know, hitting out of his shoes. Um, he'll never be a, he'll never be a player who's going to force himself to the net. He's not as good a volleyer as Nadal, but here's what we are seeing from Djokovic. Novak throughout his career has had much more success improving the serve, you know, compared to Nadal. Nadal has has made an effort throughout his entire career to to serve bigger, but for Djokovic, it you know, he's done a better job of it. And you know, he's naturally I think I think it comes more natural to Djokovic. So, I mean, what did we see in 2020? He's hitting 110 mile per hour second serves in in uh, at the Australian Open. Um but it'll be interesting, you know, maybe the answer for Djokovic might be, well, maybe he'll just decline physically less and he won't have to adapt as much, but it'll be, it'll be very interesting to see. I hope I, I answered that question. I think I answered it. Um, next question is from Tennis Time. You said in your latest video that Federer's forehand was considered around 2005 to be the best ever, maybe. How do you see the Federer forehand compared to the Sampras forehand? Um, I see the Sampras forehand as being a little bit riskier. Went for more, so he probably missed more. I, I got to give Federer's forehand the edge because he he relied on it so much more heavily than Pete. And yeah, the forehand was a big part of Sampras's game, but um, Pete was more likely to serve volley. Federer's more likely to stay back and, and hit a first forehand instead. Uh, so you have to look at that. That's like that's like some people have, you know, some smart tennis people have, have said, I think Nadal's a better volleyer than Federer. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can say that because Federer uses it so much more readily, relies on it more heavily. Therefore, you know, is is finding himself with more tough volleys. But I think that has to count for something. Um, Federer, and then uh, from a technical standpoint, maybe Sampras is a little bit better on the run going to his right, and Federer's much better and, and so good. No, He might be the greatest of all time at running around it. Most of the great forehands are, are great at it, and, and Sampras could run around it, but uh, I think I think Federer's a little bit better at that. But, I mean, two two great forehands. Sometimes it's hard to compare forehands. Sometimes I think it's even hard to compare Federer and Nadal's forehand, which is better. Max um, asks, what about team's game made it such a bad matchup for Federer in 2019? And how can Roger counter that? Yeah, team went 3-0 and against Federer in 2019. He beat him at Indian Wells in the final in three sets. He then beat him in Madrid in the quarterfinal in three sets. And then he beat him at the uh, tour finals in straight sets, 7-5, seven, 7-5. Five, seven, five. I mean, Federer won the first set in, in the, first, the first two times they played. Team was outstanding in 2019. 
and you don't have the biggest sample size. But yes, yeah, so certainly the matchup um, kind of has been troublesome for Feder. I mean, the, the career head-to-head is team five wins, Feder two wins. Excuse me. Um, you know, the when they when they play on a slow surface, I think the power is a big deal. Team can overpower Federer from the baseline. I also point to some of the really big points in their match in both Madrid and at Indian Wells. Some of the biggest points of the match, whether it be break points or in Madrid, um, Federer had match points in the match in in Madrid, and uh, in the second set tiebreak, uh, Federer served and volleyed at I think ten all. And uh, some of the big points have been Federer serving volleys against team, and team has passed Federer. Uh, it's been it's been interesting. Some of the biggest points last season. So uh, I think Roger has not done well enough in the uh, serve and return battle, all in all, because uh, I think that that team has really served and returned in all three of those matches. He's done a great job against Federer. In the match in Indian Wells, I know in the first set, Federer's return was incredible because team kept serving to Federer's backhand. And then team started mixing it up and serving really well, and it was a whole different ball game. In the match in Madrid, I know that um, team did not return well at all until the third set. Um, in the second set, I think both players just held serve to the tiebreak. It could have gone either way. Tour finals, man. I mean, the, the shot making from team was just was just scary. Just scary that whole week. I mean, he he got on he got on went on such a tear uh that week. So yeah, I mean team was outstanding in 2019 and things things broke the right way. Um but tactically I I think you gotta watch the the serve return battle because I don't think I don't think when team drops way back in the second serve. I think he keeps duping Federer into these serve volley on, on big points, and he keeps losing. It's kind of a minute detail, but that that's how it's... That's just how it went down. Two matches, I'm telling you. Indian Wells and Madrid, Federer's been burned on the serve volley. Uh, Gene Swart asks, I know uh, you already covered this briefly in previous shows, uh, but do you think it's a bad idea for a possible ATP and WTA merger? Well, um, I'm a little bit skeptical that this is going to happen. I know that this has been attempted many, many times over the course of the last 30 years. And I know that you know, before the ATP and the WTA even existed, Billie Jean King was trying to make it one thing, and they could not agree on terms. That's why Billie Jean King founded World Team Tennis, which is one of the few, um, which is one of the few sports organizations in the world where men and women compete on the same team. Um, so, so you know, they, they've tried it a bunch of times. I think the reason this has this conversation has resurfaced is because ATP leadership changed, changed, and uh, they wanted to explore this. And you know, it all comes down to. Is there a world where this is going to benefit both sides? So uh, I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't really think the ATP is gonna like give up money because what? Who does that? No, no one does that. That's not really a thing. I also don't think that the the WTA is going to want to be like swallowed by the ATP, um, which is also right something that 
is um it's a it's a it's a feasible possibility right so the world in which this happens is if it's beneficial for both sides and you know i i have not adequately heard the 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 case for that other than the fact that bundling the television deals together might give them more um, leverage in in negotiation. And I know that's kind of in the weeds. I will say this: I do think it's a stronger product when you have men and women together in in, in the same events. I think the the strongest events are combined events. They, you know, they're the most intriguing. They're the most exciting. Um, and I think overall, I think you you have an improved product when you have men and, and women. But can that improved product, and again, uh, this would be, there would be a lot of benefits here from, you know, it would, it would simplify the experience for the tennis fan to have one tour with men and women, right? It would simplify the experience for the tennis fan. It's just, is there a world where it benefits both sides? And I, I'm a little bit skeptical. I, I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that world exists. Pitar. Uh, Gil, do you agree that saving two match points on Federer's serve and then winning the match at the Wimbledon final last year by Novak, giving the circumstances may go down as the biggest moment in tennis history? Maybe I'm subjective, but I don't see that anyone else could have done that except Novak. I know that you will not give your opinion on the GOAT issue, but to me, uh, if that's not a characteristic that can be attributed only to a GOAT player, then I don't know what is. I'm looking forward to hear. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this. Um, well, I mean, certainly one of the characteristics of, of Djokovic is his unbelievable nerve under pressure. Um, but my answer to the question, do I think this is going to be one of the biggest moments in tennis history, or I think just the biggest was the question. Look, I mean, this is where I stand on this. Uh, I think that when Federer, um, Nadal, and Djokovic all retire, I think that there will be cases on, you know, all three sides will have cases, but whoever finishes with the most slams, they are going to have the, the, the tallest, uh, stump to stand on. So I don't think the biggest moment in, in this has happened yet. I think it's in the future. It's coming because these numbers are converging, right? I mean, now Nadal has never been so close to Federer and I, all three of them haven't been, you know, they've never been this tight. And, and especially because Nadal and, and Djokovic have, have really just closed in on Roger here. Um, you know, that's what's so exciting about the next couple years is that this is going to be a big deal. And I've said this before, as, as toxic as the GOAT debate may be, the slam race is great for tennis and it will continue to be one of the main cells. It will get the casual fan, the casual fan who, who may not watch every tennis match, the casual fan will watch a Wimbledon final if they know that that record is on the line. I mean, everyone will watch. So, you know, that, again, my, my opinion, just to be clear, I don't think the biggest moment in, in, in this era, in the big three era, I don't think that moment has happened yet. It also depends on who, who finishes on top. You know, who knows? I mean, if, for example, if, if no one, if no one won a slam again, right? Let's say, let's say they're all stuck at their current numbers. Might look at the, 
you probably look at the Australian Open in 2017, and that's that's what gave Federer the the one slam edge over Nadal. He had he was up a break in the fifth set, and you know, boom, right? So it would change based on who comes out on top. George says, during your last video, you mentioned that no player has managed to match Nadal's ability to create topspin on the forehand side. Do you think him actually being right-handed has anything to do with this special and unorthodox shot? Maybe this unnatural approach is difficult to replicate with a natural forehand. What do you think? Keep up the good work, Gil, and stay safe. Thank you. Mm, interesting. So, first of all, it, it happened by accident. You know, no one told, no one's... Uncle Tony didn't say, Rafa, follow through over your over your left shoulder. I just did it with my right shoulder because I'm a righty. No one said, Rafa, follow through over your left shoulder, buggy whip, you know, topspin, right? It, it just happened. You know, I, I, I don't think that's that's relevant. I think that, you know, my intuition would say that being a righty probably helps Nadal more on his backhand because, you know, that that's a right. For a two-hander, you want your non-dominant hand to actually kind of be dominant, right? So if you look at the best two-handers, if you look at Djokovic's two-hander or uh, or Murray's two-handers, the left the left hand and the left wrist, that, that's kind of the key there. Um, and if it's not the key, that's actually a problem. You should probably switch to a one-hander if that's the case. Um, so so I don't know. I don't think there's I don't think there's evidence of that. I, I'm just. I'm just really surprised that that no one's forehand has heavily resembled Nadal's. I mean, everyone is is watching, you know, growing up, and I mean, there there are so many young kids who are watching Nadal and envying him and trying to replicate him. I, I'm just shocked that no one has come up and no one's forehand has looked anything like Nadal's, right? And I know you're probably thinking, well, like, what about whose forehand looks like Federer's and whose forehand looks like Djokovic? Um, I mean, I think Djokovic is, is a little bit more conventional, but like, I don't know, if you look at like Hubie Hercotch's forehand, like it kind of resembles Djokovic's, uh, you know, I, I'd have to go through and that would be something that I'd have to, I'd have to look at. Um, I think Tsitsipas has a little bit of Federer forehand in his, in his forehand for another example, but you know. It does surprise me. I'm not sure if it has anything to do with uh, Nadal being righty. The the Nadal being righty thing, it's a great fun fact, but it's probably a little bit overdone as like a factor in Nadal's greatness. You know, it's not it's not a factor. Um, Swagat says, hello, Gil. Love your show. Um, as you know, thank you. Um, few questions. One. Why does Novak's tactic of staying closer to the baseline, taking the ball early and attacking Nadal's forehand not work on clay uh, because the slower surface can't be the reason? Well, it kind of can, right? Because Nadal's forehand, you know, he wants time on that shot. This is a, this is a big factor because, you know, some shots need more time than others. It's a, it's a really big factor, right? Everyone has a different length of swing. You know, every some players might have a great ground stroke, but a poor return. Why is that? Well, you don't have time on the return, so it's a different shot. The mechanics have to be different. So, you know, I, I think the clay court, again, a lot of what Nadal, I mean, excuse me, a lot of what Djokovic does is he rushes Nadal. Why can't Nadal play first strike tennis against Djokovic? It's because 
the the returns are so good that Nadal is rushed and can't hit a big forehand. So a lot about a lot of it is how much time does the player on the other side of the net have? If you give a guy like Dominic Team or Rafa Nadal, if you give if you give them time to hit, they absolutely murder the ball. They murder it. I mean, it's the heaviest they're the heaviest balls in tennis. If you if you rid them of that time, like you can do on a on a quicker court, like they just don't hit as big. It's just not it's not as big. Um Federer is is better equipped to, you know, his forehand is incredibly compact. So he just does not require as much time. He doesn't hit it as big. Federer doesn't hit it as big as those guys when he has time even. But when he doesn't have time, a lot of the time he hits it bigger. Second one is, uh, who's your favorite guest on the YouTube channel until now? Mine is Jeff Salzenstein by far because he always speaks his mind without filter. Yeah, Jeff Jeff, Jeff is uh, probably has the most hot takes, which, which we always love. It's always great. Um, really tough one. Really tough one. Hmm. When it comes to perspective, I love Steve Flink. I think he just has incredible perspective on the on the game as a whole. Um, when it comes to technical stuff um, and, and tactical stuff, Jeff. Um, and you know, I, I admire, I really admire John John Wertheim as as a pure journalist. I think he he does great journalism. So um, you know, every guest has their different strengths. Uh, Joel Drucker was was also tremendous. We talked about um, Jimmy Connors, and 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 Joel was was tremendous. That's been guys. That's been the silver lining. And by the way, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna angle um, to get players at 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 some point. But I, I um I only want to talk to players that that you guys would be really interested in in hearing from. You know, I'm not I'm not gonna talk to players just for the sake of talking to players. But you know, um, it could be in the future. But one of the silver linings of the pandemic, and again, I've, I've talked about this, but you got to turn bad things into good things. And one of the good things that's come of this is is um, I've been able to um, talk to, to so many great people, uh, so many great tennis minds. So that's been really great. Uh, third is, why is Medvedev such a tough matchup for Tsitsipas? Uh, is it just the big serve and, uh, and his consistent low backhand, which attacks Tsitsipas' one-hander? Yeah, I've, I've I've gotten this question before, and like I, I don't have a great answer for it, other than the fact that um, I think that they had a, a rivalry going, and I think Medvedev loves that increased tension, right? We saw that at the U.S. Open 2019, the crowd is booing, and it's a tension-filled situation, and Med and Medvedev just eats that up, and I think Tsitsipas is better when when he can calm down and not put so much pressure on himself. So I think, I think Tsitsipas is just all in his head about beating Medvedev. And I think he wants nothing more than, than to beat Daniil. They don't like each other. And I think it, it messes with Steph's mind. And I think Daniil really relishes that, that uh, mindset. Okay. How long have I been talking? 31 minutes. Okay. Let's go to 40, shall we? I think we have... Yeah, let's go to 40, and I'll start answering these a little bit quicker. Hi, Gil. I was wondering if you have seen all of the big three play live. Yes, I have. And if if yes, what is the most impressive thing about them that maybe isn't obvious when watching their tennis on TV? I appreciate you and your work very much. All the best. I'm going to make that the big four because I've watched Murray too. Um, okay, let's see. 
for Federer, it's the it's the gliding movement. It's like it's almost like yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the number one thing for Federer when I watch him in person is the footwork and just like how how light he is on his feet. Because, you know, sometimes with, with a Nadal or a Djokovic, you can kind of you can kind of hear their feet on the court. Um, you know, well, I, I don't know if that's so much true. But a lot of the time their movement looks more violent and incredibly explosive at times. But to watch Federer's movement, you know, looks it's it's really graceful and i i don't quite sometimes it's hard to put your finger on it but i think that's the most impressive thing about uh watching federer and then sometimes how quick his hands are if that makes sense um but you know he's he's something else nadal um nadal it is the furiosity it, it's it's mainly the heaviness of the ball. When you watch Nadal, it's like, whoa, he is smoking the ball. I mean, he, you know, the the sound that the ball makes when when it hits Nadal's racket, especially on his forehand, the racket speed he generates, and just just how violent the topspin is. I mean, the way the ball dips into the court. I mean, it's it's really a pleasure. I love, I you know, I, I probably. I just love watching Nadal hit ground strokes and how violent, uh, violently he hits the ball. Let's see for Djokovic. Um, court coverage might be Djokovic. Um, again, I think Djokovic is a player, you know, full full of subtleties, full of subtleties. He he moves you, you know, he does so many things well. He does does everything right. Right, he. Moves you around. He has great cardio. He's so consistent. Um, but it, it's probably just when you see him defending, when he gets on the move, and he's and he's really in a put up a wall mode, and it's like, oh my god! Like you you watch you watch someone hit a shot, and you think, oh, that's a winner. No, he got to it. Then then they hit the next shot, and you say, oh, that's a winner. And no, he gets to it. And in person. You know, when when you just see the the movement and the court coverage, that's probably the the best thing about watching Djokovic live. And I can just hear right now at the U.S. Open, I can hear the the sliding, the sliding two-handed backhand open stance. You know, you can just the the senses are enhanced when you watch a match live. And you know, part of that is the sound when Nadal hits uh, hits the ball, or the sound of Djokovic sliding on the court, right? What should Nadal change in his game to be able to win more slams on hard in Wimbledon? And what should he do to overcome Djokovic and Roger head-to-head? -head? I've, an I've answered this before, so apologies, but I'm going to go to the next one. U.S. Open and Indian Wells power rankings. Jose always wants that. Uh, I'm not prepared. Not prepared. Sinner or Ojay Aliasim? Sinner right now. He's, um, you know, Sinner is not there physically, but... Um, I haven't seen the vulnerability in center that I've seen in Felix. You know, Felix, if Felix doesn't start missing less balls, he's, he, you can only go so far. You can be extremely athletic and you can have a great forehand and a good backhand. But it, you know, if, if you're going to miss balls, it's just, you, you can't go, you can't go that far. Um, 
Do you see? Do you foresee a future where players will develop two forehands? And do you think the first person to do so will dominate the tour? Yeah, fascinating, fascinating. Great question. Um, two forehands. Yeah, like I, 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 I kind of do see it happening at some point in time, and. I make this point a lot, but I think it's such an important point to make because I'm not sure a lot of people understand it. The The best backhands on tour don't do nearly the damage that the best forehands on tour do. And on average, the men's forehand, this is not true in the on, in the women's game, but you know, in the men's game, I sometimes I don't think people understand how much bigger the average forehand is compared to the backhand. And, you know, that just makes it, it's such a pillar of, of, success in men's tennis and the the one the one weird part is with your hands right um it's almost like what are you going to do right so let's say i'm a righty i have my bottom my right hand on the bottom of the of the grip obviously and then if someone hits it to my forehand side or i decide i'm going to hit a forehand i flip my grip and my hands on the bottom and i hit a forehand but what are people going to do with two forehands right what's the answer here so Right, because if I take my my right hand off to hit a lefty forehand, I'm a little bit choked up on the grip. So I don't know if mechanically that really works. So that's kind of a question that I have, and maybe that's why it's never been natural for a player to do it. We've seen two hands on both sides, but we have not I haven't seen one hand on both sides. But if someone can figure it out, yeah, like that's a scary, scary concept. Um, Grand Slam champions have emerged constantly without large gaps between champions, and now the youngest Grand Slam champion is 31 years of age. Is this indicative of how weak the next generation is? Yeah, I mean, and how strong this generation is. But the next gen is still really young. I mean, again, there, there's there's a lost gen there, right? I mean, what's going on with ages 30 through 24? Like, what the heck happened there? That's the question. I wouldn't go too hard on Tsitsipas and Medvedev and Zverev and Dimonor and Hachinov. I, I wouldn't go too hard on, on those guys because they have time. Last one, after Nadal retires, do you think Dominic team could mimic Nadal's unparalleled ability at Roland Garros? It's too late, right? It's too late. I mean, if you're saying could he, could he win 12? I, maybe that's not the question. I'm, I'm, I'm taking it too literally. I don't see anyone else right now who could stand up to team's ability to play on clay. Do you see team winning maybe five to seven French Open titles in close succession? I see team winning a couple for sure. But uh, he's 27. He's going to be 28. Physical style. We'll, we'll see how team ages. But five to seven, that's a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, I, I wouldn't say five to seven. Two to two to four, yeah, I'm I'm with you. Two 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 to four, I I think is a, is a better range. All right, I said I'd go forty minutes. I lied. Hope you enjoyed this, everyone. Um, remember, if you are watching on YouTube, give this video a thumbs up. Don't forget to subscribe. Hit the bell next to the subscription button to get notified anytime I drop a video. If you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcast, don't forget to rate review and follow or subscribe. Hope you enjoyed. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. 
And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.